From Brooklyn, New York, I'm Adam Teeter, and this is a Vine Pair Podcast Conversation. We're bringing you these conversations between our regular podcast episodes in order to examine how we're moving forward as a drinks business during the COVID-19 crisis. Today, I'm talking with Trey Zeller, founder of Jefferson's Bourbon. Trey, thank you so much for joining me. Last time we were together was basically right before this all started. (laughs) You got it. It seems like an eternity ago. However, I'm hoping that things seem to be opening up just a little bit. So maybe we're getting back to some normalcy. Who knows? I hope so. I hope so too. So where are you right now? I'm in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm at my home office. So you might hear two 15-year-olds causing a ruckus out the door, but besides that, uh, enjoying perfect weather down here. Amazing. So um, how... Have you sort of adapted since all this happened? I mean, we were together, met up at the Charleston Wine and Food Festival, you know, in early March, and then sort of parted ways on that last day of the festival. Um, you, I would assume, where you go, you probably headed back to Louisville or, or, or some other location. Uh, but pretty soon, I know when we headed back, you know, a shutdown happened. So, how did you guys adapt immediately after you sort of heard the news that things were starting to close down? Actually, I left, came home, and went up to New York for a couple of days, and. Uh, just creepy up there towards the end. I think I was supposed to leave on a Friday. I got out of town on a Thursday when they were threatening to close down the subways and um, public transportation. Uh, but got back here and, uh, you know, we had to adjust. We shut down the distillery except for two distillers uh, for two shifts a day. So we had two on for 12 hours at a time. And uh, you know, no visitors were very cautious of what we would let in and out of the distillery. Uh, we made quite a bit of hand sanitizers along the way. and We provide that for first responders, whether that's fire department, police department, even the mail uh, service and hospitals. Um, so, you know, we adjusted. We're now open uh, three days a week. Four days a week, actually Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday for tours, and uh, you know, having those very spaced out. But uh, you know, it's, it's amazing. We've got most of our tour guys are retired, and you know, I was certainly worried about them and being more of an advanced age. But they're the ones that were begging us, "Please let us go back to work. We, we need to get back out and, and have some interaction with people." So. Uh, so uh, we did that, and then gosh, I have done countless virtual tastings and right. virtual interviews and seminars, and you know I've had some fun with that. So uh, you know you adapt, and it's uh, it's interesting, but you've always got to keep evolving and adapting. So every day is an adventure. That is definitely extremely true. That every day is an adventure. So in terms of the the, the sort of strategy for Jefferson's. Um, well, so first of all, I guess before we even talk about the strategy, for those that are unfamiliar with uh, with the bourbon, can you just give us a little bit of a backstory about Jefferson's Bourbon, um, how you started the brand, um, and sort of you have so many different offerings. You have you know your the Incredible Ocean series. You have bourbons you finish in wine casks, a bunch of stuff. So if you could t- tell us a little bit about Jefferson's first, then we'll get into from that. Let me ask you more you know business questions about the strategy after COVID. Right, right, which was a little bit different. But yeah. I think it, it kind of parallel us, and I, I got into the business when it was in the 30-year decline. You couldn't get bourbon away when I started. Um, 
which was in 1997. My dad and I started this up. And it was really growing up in Kentucky with bourbons everywhere. I think I thought everybody drank it. It wasn't until I moved to a half dozen different places around the country that I found that there wasn't very much of a selection and people didn't really uh, didn't drink a whole lot of it. Um, my dad, about that time, bought a barrel of Bushmills Irish whiskey in 1993 that would have turned 25 years old on a millennial. Um, and he bought that barrel for the equivalent of $13.50 a bottle in 93. And by the time they bottled it up, it was 200, it was worth $250 a bottle. So as I saw that, I said, you know, these warehouses in Kentucky were busting at the seams and I would come home for Thanksgiving and Christmas and started talking to my friends in the distilling business. There were only eight distilleries left at that point. Um, and asked if they would be willing to sell some of their bulk bourbon. And of course, they were more than happy to. There was no one dumb enough to go out there and buy these stocks of bourbon um, because there really wasn't a high-end market for it whatsoever. But when I bought it, the idea was to sell enough to fund a distillery. Um, however, every one of the distillers I talked to told me the same thing, 65 to 80% of what bourbon is or the heart and soul of bourbon comes from the maturation process. And so I decided to dedicate what we want to do to manipulating the maturation process. So as you alluded to, we now have 19 different expressions of Jefferson's. I did not realize you had 19. <laughs> wow. Soon to be 20. And uh, of those, uh, 17 of the 19, we do something different than what most distillers or distilleries do, which is, distill it, age it, cut it to proof, and bottle it somewhere in the maturation process. So what we're really doing is putting more time, money, and effort into it after it's been distilled, and whether that's blending, finishing, changing the agitation environment, or any number of things that will, what we try to do is push the boundaries of what bourbon is without pasteurizing. So we're not trying to accelerate it. That's why we're always using you know, great mature bourbon. Youngest bourbon that we really mess with is six years old. So then, when you when you decided to do this, did you was it mostly that you were just going to originally you know take the liquid and finish it in your own rick houses or things like that, or had you already had the idea that you were going to start playing with using different you know barrels or I mean putting it on a boat and shipping it around the world? Like, wh- what was the original thought process for you when people had told you, "Well, look." Here's the thing, you know, a, a large percentage, what you said, 65%, at least 75% of, of bourbon is, is aging. What was mm-hmm. the, the thought process in your head of what you were going to do with it? Well, first, it was just going to expose it to the world because aged bourbons weren't available. The Van Winkles were selling you know, a very small amount. Uh, the Willets were selling a very small amount, mainly over to Japan. Um, and that's about it. So I first just wanted to expose it to different people. So I started buying small esoteric lots of bourbon and bottling up. We came out with a 15-year-old Jefferson's Reserve, a 10-year-old Sam Houston, which was very different style, uh, 12-year-old old iron skillet. And then I started taking these different lots of bourbons. And first, what I started to do was blending together. And uh, certainly, you know, blending in those days was kind of a dirty word in whiskey because people associated that with blended scotches. You could add GNS or caramel coloring, what have you. So 
um, if other people were blending, they certainly weren't talking about it. And I was looking at it more like you know, a wine blender. And um, actually, I was over at McAllen in those early days and then noticed on the distiller's door, it said production manager. And on the blender's door, it said whiskey maker. <laughs> that's very funny. I kind of bought into that philosophy. You know, that, that's, you know, distilling, I think, is a science that's been perfected over the last 150 years. And um, it's really the art of maturation that you can, uh, that you can manipulate. And uh, that's kind of the combination of one to have that great base of the distilling but put the order maturation into it. So then are you as big of a proponent that there needs to be like a specific recipe when it comes to what's distilled? You know, I know there's a lot of, you know, a lot of bourbon geeks that make a big deal about certain people's recipes, the Van Winkles being one of them, right? Um, that it's really, it's about the recipe that is what makes the bourbon so amazing. But the bourbons you were buying, were they all, the same mash bills were they different mash bills? Has that changed throughout the history of Jefferson's? Um, and where do you stand in sort of that opinion that some people have about bourbon? Well, so we did three things still today. We source as we did in the very beginning, twenty-three years ago. So we're buying from different mature distilleries in Kentucky. We've been contracting with them for decades, so they've been making my recipe specifically for me. And we distill ourselves. So actually, what we distill ourselves um, is a very distinct flavor. And I use that more as a flavoring agent. The bulk of our bourbon is distilled from one of the big distilleries here that, uh, you know, they've been making this recipe for quite some time for us. And so, you know, I want to have that same recipe for consistency. However, you know, again, for me, it's the maturation. So, you know, like what we're, we're doing a 36% rye at the distillery. That's a okay. big, big, um, you know, that's a, that's a rye bomb. And, you know, a little bit of that goes a long way. So that can, that helps me, you know, I kind of look at it as one of the many products that I have in our spice rack. Um, but I'm looking for more of a benign um, recipe that will let the maturation really come out. And it's how we manipulate the barrels that it's really where the flavor is coming from. That being said, you know, my dad is a bourbon historian. He identified over 2,500 distilleries, legal distilleries, just in Kentucky prior to Prohibition. And again, there were eight that we're making a number of different products, but mainly the same recipe. So when you look at it, you know, 85% of all those bourbons are utilizing rice or small grain, the other 15% wheat. And they're really, the vast majority is within 7% one way or the other. So it's pretty narrowed down. So people think they've got, you know, that's kind of a, a perfected recipe. Now they're, you know, with, now there's over 2,800 distilleries, I believe. And there's lots of different experiments and lots of different uh, grains being used. And I think that's great. Um, and more power to them. We've actually got the only malting house in Kentucky, so we're experimenting a lot with the different yeast. That being said, 
I'll still go back to, you know, I want that great base and traditional flavors, but I want to manipulate it with the barrels. That makes sense. So another question for you. I mean, we're getting more into geeky bourbon talk than, uh, you know, what's happening now, but I hope that's okay. Um, is there such a thing as bourbon that's too old? Well, uh, there is. And um, there, as a matter of fact, I had a call with someone earlier today who's doing the best bourbons of the 21st century. And our Jefferson's Presidential Select 17, he said, was edged out to be the number one bourbon. So it was number two on his list. Um, we bottled that bourbon up as a 17, as an 18, as a 20-year-old. And almost everyone, including myself, will say it peaked at 17 years old. So every bourbon has a point where it's got its apex and then you have diminishing returns. And that varies on, you know, based on a number of different factors. But older does not mean better by any stretch of imagination. Now, it's got to be, I like to work eight years old is what I've found it's kind of my honey hole spot that I like to work with. You know, say I'm finishing or trying to agitate it one way or the other. That eight-year-old has you know, plenty of complexity, and it's nice and mature and it's viscous, yet it doesn't take too much out of that original barrel of whatever I'm doing with it that the secondary thing that I'm going to do with it doesn't have its impact or it loses some of its impact. So to me, that's that's where I think the bourbon is optimum to do what I want to do with it. That being said, we bottled up a 30-year-old bourbon. And actually, we bottled up a 25-year-old bourbon that if you taste it, you know, it should be way over-oaked. And you can't taste much of the oak at all. And you know, one of the things I did buy those barrels where they were on the warehouse floor, they weren't up in bricks. So I think that arrested some of the aging process and let it just sit. So yeah, it's a long way of saying yes, there can be bourbons that are too old. Right. Very interesting. So when you first started building this brand, and I think this will help us get to where we want to go, which is sort of talking about, you know, since things have sort of changed in, in the business. Was it a brand that you were mostly building through off-premise, through on-premise? I know when we when we chatted in Charleston for a while, you talked a bunch about you know going to the bourbon festivals and actually being right next to the Van Winkles and a deal where they'd buy a case of your bourbon and you'd get a free case of Pappy or vice versa, um, which is an amazing story that I love to tell other people now. Um, but you know how what was your strategy for building the brand originally? It was all off-premise. We didn't have the manpower. And still today, it's just now that we have that manpower to go ahead and hit the on-premise if it was open. Um, and, and that's what I was kind of excited going into 2020 about. But, uh, you know, we are 93% off-premise, um, which is you know, where we could hit. And to me, it was you know, more important to get those bottles shared than it was to try to sell cases than it was bottles. And that's, that's what happens on premise. So our strategy, you know, we've grown at an amazing clip uh, over the last five, six years specifically. And you know, 
keeping up with supply has has been an issue. Actually, we were in a dozen different export markets, and we had to pull back from most of those. Um, we you know, try to keep, you know, take care of our existing customers that have been loyal to us for a long time, the best we can. So it, it's been you know, kind of a challenge to to hit some of those places now that we'd like to, and. So we've done, with a lot of our limited releases, we'll put them out once, maybe twice a year in small allotments and try to take care of our customers that have taken care of us, as I said. Amazing. Um, so since COVID, what has changed for the business in terms of how you've been marketing the bourbon? Because since you, since you did, you know, build your, you know, the the bourbon mostly in the off-premise, I would assume you had a lot of loyal customers who already knew to look for Jefferson's uh, as the shutdown was happening. Um, were there other sort of strategies that you guys began in order to ensure that you were, you were meeting that customer? Um, and, you know, were there any other sort of initiatives that you began that you hadn't done before? Well, I, you know, we've been fortunate and I think that the bourbon category has always been fortunate, but we've been up quite a bit. There's a lot of people drinking it, you know, the category. It's a perfect category for intimate settings. People love to buy a higher-end bottle of bourbon and drink it with a friend or two or a small amount and tell the story of what's, what's in that bottle. And that's what makes bourbon such a, you know, kind of a storyteller's darling is because there's great history and there's romance behind what goes in each one. And ours, you know, we pretty much in almost every one of our products, we've collaborated with somebody who's an expert in another field that the two of us get together and, you know, manipulate that bourbon one way or the other. And what we do to it kind of tells you what it's going to taste like. You can understand why the, where those tastes are coming from. So it's a great thing to share. So it's been, you know, we've been one of the businesses that have been blessed with doing well. You, know, you hate to see what's happened with our on-premise partners. It's, you know, it's, it's devastating for those folks. Um, but that, that's been the first thing you know, that, that we were there and we're, we've been putting it out to them. And, you know, one, we're just trying, again, trying to keep up with the demand. Um, right. we, we did do a, a lot of our ocean weeded barrels uh, during this time. And instead of bringing samples out to the retailers or having our retailers down to the distillery in Kentucky. We've sent out samples and I've done you know, hundreds of uh, virtual barrel tastings over the last few months, which, uh, which is kind of fun in its own right. So you, you got to evolve. So we, we, they either tell me to go ahead and pick it or we'll get and send them samples. And right. We'll taste through those samples together and then choose the barrels and, get those things out for. So you mentioned, I mean, obviously you have 19 different expressions of, of the bourbon. One of the most well-known uh, is the, is the ocean series. Can you explain a little bit uh, what that series is? Sure. You know, what happened first is I was on my friendship guy by the name of Chris Fisher, who's from Louisville, Kentucky, who's become the preeminent shark enthusiast, great white shark enthusiast, I should say. Um, and he's got uh, an organization called Osearch.org where they catch, tag, and release great white sharks. In order to collect the data, they 
received by when the sharks surface, they ping up to a satellite and show where they're tracking. But he's got an open source uh, of information where he shares it with all universities, marinas, aquariums, um, in order to basically maintain uh, uh, abundance of the ocean. So that's what he does. However, he invited myself and a bunch of friends down for his 40th birthday on the ship where we caught fish and sharks and surfed and drank a lot of bourbon on the bow of the ship. <laughs> we were drinking bourbon on the bow of the ship. We watched it slosh back and forth within the bottle. And I thought if this would happen in a bottle, it would certainly happen in a barrel, and that would change the maturation one way, shape, or form. So I suggested, why don't we put some barrels on your ship? He suggested, probably not a great idea with the crew catching great white sharks. The more he drank that night, the more he came up with a great idea. Let's put some barrels on the ship. And so we did. We put some new filled barrels, actually five of them. He took off on a uh, three and a half year journey. Um, when he brought his ship back to, to Key West for repairs, we went down and tasted it. What came out was absolutely black in flavor. It was thick and it was absolutely delicious. So we sent one of those barrels back to reverse, be reverse engineered to the Cooperage and found. And three things happened. One, you had constant contact with the wood, which imparted color, which imparted flavor, and that wood acted as a filter that took away the astringency of the alcohol. Two, um, when it's exposed to this extreme heat, it caramelizes the sugars in the wood. And three, and most important in my mind, is it's, they're out on the open seas. That salt air permeates the barrel and gives them a briny taste. So it's the Charleston Brown Water Society dubbed it the salted caramel popcorn bourbon. And how we commercialize that is we now take six to eight year old bourbon, we put it in cradles that go into containers, that go on ships and sail out of the port of Savannah to 30 different ports around the world. It's five different continents that crosses the equator four times. We're all the way down in the Tasmanian Sea and up in the, um, the North Sea. Uh, so it, it really is getting different temperatures and fluctuation and movement within the barrel that gives it you know, really different flavors. So now we've got three versions of that. We've got our regular version, which is a rye-based uh, voyage. We've got the cast strength version of that rye, and then we've got a weeded voyage that comes out once a year. So we're now on our 22nd voyage, and even though the route is basically the same, depending on what time of year or what it encounters, like hurricanes or cyclones, that will totally bring in different flavors to the product. So it's like Christmas morning with those barrels. That's really awesome. I mean, and having had the bourbon myself, it's it's absolutely delicious and a, su- a super, super cool uh, project. So when you were saying that there's a, a 20th uh, finish coming out, is that the weeded finish that you were talking about? No, no, we've already come out with a weeded finish. Oh, you've already come out with a weeded. So, so, so can you tell us what the 20th finish is going to be? Yeah, well, we've actually got two things coming out. One, I'm doing a special bottling from our Jefferson's Reserve for single barrels, which is going to be at 100 proof versus the 90.2 that we typically do it. That's the first one that we've done with a different proof. So that's, I'm not, I won't really call it a new expression, but that's kind of something very unique that we're doing um, for this one time single barrel series and then uh, we're doing a cognac finished rye 
So we finished this rye whiskey in cognac for uh, for over 18 months, and it really brings in some different flavors to you know, the sharp spice of the rye. Um, it's what I would call a sipping rye because of these orange and honey flavors that just come through and make it just gives it so much more weight to this whiskey. Really, really interesting. Very good. That's really amazing. Well, Trey, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, to chat with me today. This has been fascinating to learn more about Jefferson's and and hear you know what you guys have been up to uh, you know this year, especially since we got together in in Charleston. So I, I really, really appreciate you taking the time. You got it, Adam. Hopefully, we can see each other in person soon. Nothing else. Hopefully, certainly by next year at the uh, Charleston Food and Wine Wine and Food, we can do it again there. I agree. Well, t- take care, and in the meantime, until we see each other again, please be well. You bet. You do the same. Man. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you enjoy listening to us every week, please leave us a review or rating on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now, for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and hosted by Zach Jabal, Erica Ducey, and me, Adam Teeter. Our engineer is Nick Patry and Keith Beavers. I'd also like to give a special shout out to my Vinepair co-founder, Josh Mallon, and the rest of the Vinepair team for their support. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again right here next week.